This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. So I talk a lot on this show about how to be more productive, how to get the most out of your day, how to consistently create and overcome all the obstacles and challenges. My guest today is one of the most productive and creative people I know, Jeffrey Tucker. He is the author of multiple books, uh, some great titles in there like uh, Bourbon for Breakfast, uh, A Beautiful Anarchy. And he's the author of hundreds, if not thousands of articles and blog posts. He is a curator, creator, cultivator of digital communities, um, a huge advocate of bringing all kinds of resources into the digital world, um, fighting against protections and barriers put up by intellectual property. He's become kind of a, an expert on cryptocurrencies, digital communities. He travels all over the world to speak. And um, I really am excited to talk with him today about how he is three things at once that don't always go together. Productive, personable, and a partier, a hardcore partier. So help me, uh, I was going to say, help me welcome Jeff Tucker, but there's no live audience to clap. So Jeff Tucker, welcome to the show. Okay. Yeah. Hey, thanks so much. So this is a fascinating topic. I, I, I really like this topic. I, I've been almost sure for a very long time that most of us radically underestimate what we're capable of doing, uh, that we put limits on ourselves You know, we define ourselves like, well, I'm a this I'm a that. I can only work such and such hours a day. I already did something yesterday, and I can't possibly do it again today. You know, whatever. And and I I don't know. I just think we all underestimate our own potential. Our minds are actually, we're not good governors of our brains in a way. And so I really believe in pushing myself extremely hard to test the limits and just see how far how far you can go. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's very clear to me. So. Uh, that's kind of what I, I really want to to pry in and figure out how you've gone about discovering this and what your process is. So every time I see you, everywhere I go, if I go to a conference or an event, it doesn't seem to matter where it is. You're always there. And then like two hours later, I'll see on Facebook that you're like another country away giving another talk. I swear. I mean, you're you're everywhere. And not only are you everywhere, you're like I go to bed and you're one of the last guys up hanging out, meeting everybody getting drinks with people, having a great time. You always seem to be in a good mood. And yet, I know a lot of people that go to a lot of events and do a lot of partying, but none of them are as productive as you. You Correct me if I'm wrong. You write 1,500 words a day pretty much every day. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And you have to do that, really, because uh, the more you do it, the better you get at it. You know what inspired... There's a, I had an inspiring comment that was made to me years ago by Henry Hazlitt. Um, because I knew him like right before he was his last years of his life, and I asked him how it is that he wrote so much, uh, and did he ever get writer's block? And he said to me with a little bit of a, a surprise, and he said, he said, "Well, I, I'm a writer, so no, I don't have writer's block any more than if I, you know, was a bicycler for a living, I could have bicycle block. <laughs> you, you just do it because that's that's your job and that's what you do, mm. and that really that." That comment really struck me because I think we're all a little bit too precious about our talents. You know, we think, <laughs> you know, we, we dull them out slowly and we're cautious with them and we, de- we define our own limits. And especially with writing, we get overly carried away with a sense of, um, you know, sort of the glorious uh, truth of the words we're producing, you know, and, and we don't see it as like a 
just who we are and what mm. we do. That this is our job. This is <clears throat> this is what we're supposed to do. And if we're not doing it, then we're not actually uh, living the kind of life we want to. You know, I always think about it this way. You know, we have limited time on this earth. We do. It's just a fact. You know, and we don't know when it's all going to come to an end. I just want to extract the. Mo I want to add as much value I can in every minute of mm. of the day that I possibly can. And I've learned to get, uh, I guess, in a way, disappointed with myself if I ever let a few hours go by where I've not done something valuable. Mm. And, um, and, and that, that just depresses me. So one of the reasons I, I like to work hard and long and do as much stuff as I possibly can is that it keeps me feeling good about my life mm. in a way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I had somebody once ask me, um, are you the hardest working person at your company? And this was several years ago. And I've always been probably one of the hardest working people at all, all the jobs I've had. And I thought about it for a minute. And then I thought, well, the fact that I have to think about it probably means no, if I can't immediately answer that. And then I thought further and, and, and the more that settled, sat with me, you know, I thought, okay, well, value creation and working hard are not necessarily the same thing. So it's not just, oh, I put in the most hours or I'm stressed the most, therefore I'm creating value. I, I completely agree with that. It's it's not so much, and even if you have a reputation as being a hard worker, you can get off, uh, get away with slacking sometimes because you've built up a good reputation. People will give you some, some leeway, but it's not so much that I owe it to the company or the employees or that I have to be working a certain amount of, you know, working really hard. Otherwise they'll be upset. It's more for me, when I'm not working hard, I'm just less happy. I'm just less happy on yep. like a deep sort of soul level. You know, it's like you kind of right. know when you're slacking a little bit and it just, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel good. Okay. Okay. So let me ask you, Jeff, if you get a lot of fulfillment out of working hard, do you ever feel tension? Because as I mentioned, you party hard or maybe party is the wrong word. Maybe that you play, you play a lot and you, you have a lot of fun. I mean, one of your books is called bourbon for breakfast for goodness sake. You, you are, um, in some ways kind of a, a hedonist. You love the pleasures of life and seem to embrace them. Do you find a tension between trying to have that kind of fun approach to life as well as trying to be really productive? Most really productive people have this kind of stoic, like puritanical, I've got to deny myself pleasures in order to be productive. How do you marry those two? Well, see, for me, it's it's like the, the play part is also work because it gives you an opportunity to observe things and to learn things. And I'm really fortunate that one of my jobs is to write about sort of life and how people live it and how it can be made better and, and how we can increase our sense of wonder about the world. So <clears throat> to be in a sort of social setting in a situation, I'm always encountering all kinds of things that, that feed my brain and give me sort of good fodder to write about, about later. Uh, this is the thing that you discover, you know, from, from trying to be creative is that you never really know where your creativity is going to come from, you know, where the next coolest idea is going to come from. So I find that these social situations actually blend very well into what I do mm. because they stimulate my mind. You know, I'll, I'll make some interesting connections. I love to talk to people because there's so much to learn from the way people uh, talk about the world and talk about themselves and, and uh, talk about their, their dreams or just their observations on, on anything. It's, it's, it's I, I find, I guess, I, do, I just find every aspect of life really interesting and 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 worthy of examination and turning over in my own mind. So I, I find that the two really 
really work together mm. and in a beautiful way. I I don't like to think of play and work as really separate. Uh, yeah. I like to blend them. In fact, I play. It's a little funny, but like I play better when I think of it as work. Interesting. Yeah, my, many people yeah. would say, "Oh, I work better if I think of it as play." But, <laughs> but you actually—that—that that is really. That's really interesting. You, you know, something that you just said about needing to meet a lot of people, do a lot of fun things, um, because that's where you get some of your observations. Man, have I found that to be true with when I when I make myself write a lot and I'm on a, a kick right now where I'm, I'm blogging every day. I'm not writing 1500 words. Sometimes it's only 200, but I'm trying to write something every day. And I found when I do that the second time I've done it, that I consume so much more content, whether it's through reading are uh, just consuming ideas or experiences because, and, and if someone were to ask me, Hey, I want to really amp up how much I'm reading every day. I would say, well, the, probably the best way is to make yourself write every day because you find that you need so much. You need to consume so many ideas and experiences in order to have the material to work with. And it just, it, the more you write, the more you work up this appetite for more and more experiences and ideas to write about. And they kind of fuel each other. Have you found that to be the case? Oh, I absolutely have. In fact, you've, you've really reminded me of something that I, I do want to say. Um, I, I think it's important to, when you're reading books, to uh, to write about them at the same time, even if you don't do anything with what you've written. Uh, mm. There's something about, about that process that codifies the ideas in your head, in a way. And it increases the value of what you're reading so much. So, for example... Um, right now I'm, <laughs> I'm reading this book called, um, it's a funny book. I'm, I'm actually reading two books uh, uh, at the same time right now. I'm reading Atlas Shrugged for the first time, if you can believe it. I know that's shocking. Wow. So I'm keeping, yeah, so I'm keeping a, a, a kind of a diary of the book as, as I read it. Um, so it keeps me multitasking. So I'm reading, I, if there's a good observation, a good thought, I just write it out. You know, something's in my head. I just, I just put it down. And so I'm, you know, at the end of at the end of this, I'll have a sizable kind of what I like to call a live blog of a book. I mean, mm. in the same way you go to a concert or an event and people will live blog it. You know, they'll be tweeting during the whole time. Yeah. They'll tweet to yourself yeah. as you read. Like just 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 chronicle your own experiences uh, emotionally and intellectually as you as you read. And it's it's a you you find that you get a lot more value out of the book, and that value sort of is a little sticky. So at the same time, I'm reading that book. Okay, this is Atlas Shrugged is you know, one of the most important books of the uh, second half of the 20th century, certainly. Some people say it's the second best bullet book, uh, best-selling book compared to the Bible. Well, there's another book that had that same status in the late 19th century. It was a huge seller. It sold something like 6 million copies, translated in 15 different languages. It influenced, you know, everybody from, uh, you know, Albert Einstein to John Dewey to Frank Chodorov. It's called um, Progress and Poverty, by Henry George. Okay, so I, I mean, you know, you've seen this book and use bookstores all the time. I, I've seen it for years. Yeah, I think I have a copy. I've never read it, though. Right, you've never read it. I'm, and I was the same way. I'd never read it. So I decided I would sit down and read this thing and try to figure out why it was so compelling for so many generations and why it had such gigantic influence. So as I'm reading it, I'm, I'm going through and live blogging it, you know, for myself. And I don't know what I'm going to do with this material when I finish it. So, maybe, so maybe it's, you're live blogging it, but it's not public yet. 
You're just doing it public. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. And I may I may not make it public. I, I just don't know, or I might yeah. shape it up to an essay at the at the end. But it, it makes it much more um, exciting to to read if you're if you're writing at the same time. I don't know how many people do this, but at least for me, it's just a really wonderful way to to take on a book. Huh. Um, instead of sitting there kind of like as a, as a passive reader and let the words, you know, wash over you, you now have a task, yeah. you know, so, so that every chapter, you know, you've written a little bit of a summary or a response to it or a, 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 just a general impression. And so you chronicle the, the development of your mind as you read. And the mind is a, is a, is a very beautiful thing. How it's, you know, the way we take ideas in and, and remix them and, and the ideas become malleable and it's fun to, to play, mm. you know, to do that sort of intellectual mental play. Um, but I, so I like to chronicle it as it's happening because you can't recapture that moment. Yeah. I mean, uh, when you've read chapter two, you have a lot of impressions and a lot of thoughts. You have a lot of opinions that are developing in your head. By the time you get to chapter nine, you might have already forgotten the state of your mind at chapter two. Yeah, you know? oh, absolutely. You know, so yeah. this is confession time now. I'm going to, I'm going to confess to something I've always felt a little guilty about. You, you have experience in the Catholic church, so you can hear my confession, I guess. <laughs> and that is this. How long has it been since your last confession? <laughs> I don't know. That I like. <laughs> Maybe uh, since I was born, I'm not sure. So yeah, this so, is going to be a long. <laughs> so I do this, I do this um, all the time when I'm reading, I, I write, but I almost feel a little bit fraudulent because I don't normally do it just personal, like personally, I'll publicly, uh, you know, publicly blog about it. So here's why I feel guilty about it. I'll grab a new book that I'm excited to read. I'll be like a chapter or even like three pages in and I'll have this explosion of ideas from reading. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Yeah. This makes me think of this, blah, blah, blah. And then I'll go blog about, you know, I'm reading so-and-so book and all these thoughts on it. And sometimes I never end up finishing the book. I end up moving on to other books. I always, I try to usually because I'm very goal oriented. It, I actually am trying to free myself from that need to finish books so that I can, you know, consume more once I've gotten what I want out of them. But, but I have this feeling that like, maybe, maybe I'm not allowed to say anything about a book until I've read it. And especially if it's a well-read book until I've read it like three or four times and read commentaries on it, because there's always someone who knows yeah. a lot more. And there's always that danger of being seen as a fraud or someone who's oh. pretending to be an expert. Now I usually overcome that just because I'm impatient to get more content out, but I always yeah. feel a little bit weird about it. You know what I mean? I know. I know. Well, we all feel insecure about that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, one of the things you have to reconcile yourself to as a reader, as an intellectual, as, as a thinker, as a, as a writer, is, is just recognize that there's somebody in the world who knows the topic better than you already. And there's probably something already in print that is way better than anything you're about to write. I mean, like, once you, once you recognize that, then you can kind of move past that sense of insecurity yeah, and just recognize that there's, that there's there's probably going to be something valuable in, in what you say. You might not necessarily know what it is, but certainly it's valuable to you, you know. Yeah. And um, and but that's a, you know that's hard actually. It's it's very uh, to, hard to get to that. It's very hard. And what you have to do, like you have to be like learn to be ridiculously honest with yourself as a thinker and an intellectual. Uh, which requires a certain level of humility, and also you have to be willing to make yourself vulnerable. You know, to just just get that rib spreader and put your heart out there on on paper. I I learned to do this. I, you know, this always happens in the early stages of of a person's career when they start to write. They start to they they worry so much about what they sound like to others. You know, and so they end up trying to mimic the prose of people that they respect. Um, 
and they try to sound like uh, somebody who is it may be serious or uh, substantial or you know has certain gravitas or whatever and they're constantly listening to themselves as they write and this is not a good way to write actually you've got to get over that fear that's a sense of intimidation and just be like just open and honest so how do you, you know, develop your... how do you develop your own voice you have you have a style mm. you know how uh, I always think of you kind of as like the Jerry Seinfeld, you know, they used to say about Seinfeld, he's the guy that makes jokes about everyday stuff. You're the guy yeah. super well read in the classical liberal tradition and the social sciences more broadly. Uh, a lot of even really obscure stuff through history. I'm always amazed at how much uh, you read and you've read, but you're kind of when you are being the most, I don't know, unique, your, your voice comes out the most when you're applying those insights to everyday stuff. It seems like every experience you have, you know, you could touch a dirty doorknob and get some idea and write a history of doorknobs that would be just fascinating. Like you somehow are able to tie everything from shaving cream to, so, so how did you come into that kind of for subject matter and, and your voice and your tone? How did you come into your own with that? Well, uh, I gradually began to realize something extremely important, uh, in the course of my life. Um, and it's pretty, it's pretty simple point, namely that everything is interesting. <laughs> Okay, so once I realized that, I thought, wow, that's an amazing thought. Everything is interesting. Uh, I began to sort of challenge myself, and I would sit down and um, try to write about anything. And and uh, I worked at it, actually, you know. Um, I would pick the most obscure, seemingly trivial topic I possibly could, you know, um, and then see if I could knock out uh, an essay that uh, turned this into something important and challenging and fascinating or, or funny or revealing or something about it, you know. Like try to find the really interesting thing uh, all around you and then uh, sit down and write about it. I mean, that, that's, that's, it's not easy, but um, it's great practice. And the more you do it, uh, the better you get at it. But then, again, you have to overcome the sort of sense of insecurity, you know, like, oh, what if people think this is silly, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, what if somebody reads this and looks down on me and says, oh, that person's not very smart or well-read? I mean, you just have to, like, forget all that nonsense. Well, something interesting <laughs> about the idea of, right, you know, picking anything, the most obscure thing that seems like it's not very interesting and writing about it, you, that's not uncommon to hear people who are great writers or who, um, you know, want to be saying that that's a good practice. And, and what's easy to assume is that it means, okay, if you're a great writer, you can take content that's not very interesting. And because your writing style is so good, you can make people want to read it anyway. And I think that's not at all what's happening. I think the great writers, it's not so much their wordplay that makes them great. It's, it's the way they see the world. And it's the fact that to them, that thing that does, that seems uninteresting to everyone else, they've actually found what is truly interesting about it. So it's not that they make a boring topic interesting because their words are pretty. It's because they find the truly interesting core at the heart of everything and they see the whole world as interesting. It's really, writing is really a way of seeing the world differently in many ways. Well, I think that's right. And, and, and it doesn't matter what you're writing about. If you're writing about it with a sense of sincerity and truth, um, that's really open with your readers, then, then it's, it's going to be compelling. But if you're, if you're putting on airs, or trying to sound like somebody else, or actually overly focused on style. This is one of the ways I, I feel like my biggest upgrade as a writer came when I stopped worrying about the quote style unquote, you know, and, and, and 
just focused on the ideas and the content and the truth of, of, of what I'm saying. You know, like I just wanted to be authentic. Uh, I wanted to express myself authentically uh, through, the, through the written word. And if you do that, then you have something to say, you know, and uh, I, I, that's, a, that's a tough step to, to take. But I think it's extremely important. Uh, readers are very good at spotting um, a hoax, you know. Mm. Um, professors are very good at this. You know, they've got a paper uh, that seems like it's just sort of put on or, 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 or written, ba- you know, to sound like somebody or something else. And they can, they can spot it very quickly. This is not an authentic thing but if but if a student instead is very you know honest and open and and clear about his or her um, views on something then you know the professor can recognize that too and readers are just are very sophisticated they can they can they can pick up a uh, a hoax really quickly. So what I try to do is I try to write as authentically as I possibly can. So if if I you know if I'm at a fast food restaurant and somebody just gave me a a hamburger that just like just blew me away. I'm going to write about it. You know, <laughs> I'm just going to do it. And and if and if and if I read the news and there's some horrible thing that the the, the government's doing to people and it outrages me, then I I try to write with that sense of uh, just just let my emotions uh, uh, speak. And and so, uh, by the way, so does it become really important to write in the moment of inspiration, or do you I, write down the subject and then come back to it when you have more time? So everybody's different in this respect, but for me, yeah. If I don't write it out pretty much within the day that I'm thinking about it, it loses its energy and its its verve uh, very quickly. Mm. And if I let a full week go by, it's just it's just gone. Yeah, you know. Uh, so yeah, I try to I try to make it make it happen right then. Um, by the way, some of the, some of the writers that I admire the most um, that influenced me. So of course, to be a good writer too, you have to read a lot, but. Um, um, I guess if I were going to list the ones that influenced me the most, it would be Oscar Wilde. Mm-hmm. I, I just think he's just just the master of, of uh, that sort of emotive, honest, uh, pour your heart out kind of kind of writing. And he, reading him really inspired me to to um, just be as purple as I want to be, you know, and not to pull back. Um, I, by the way, I would say the same thing about about speaking too. Um, another another writer who had a lot of influence on me, just in, in just a sheer craftsmanship, is Albert J. Nock. Uh, I think Memoirs of a Superfluous Man is one of the great pieces of, of literature of the 20th century. I adore it. Um, all the, also, the novelist uh, Garrett Garrett uh, had a huge influence on and his use of sort of strong Anglo-Saxon uh, words. Um, and And he's not shy at all, right? Um, he doesn't bury his points. He doesn't pad his prose. It's just a really strong and, and forceful writer. And that, that inspired me too. So Jeff, um, getting nitty gritty. Well, actually, let me tie it into this, uh, something a little bit broader. You mentioned speaking and uh, I had the pleasure of having you be a part of uh, a Praxis opening seminar we were doing uh, about a year ago or so. And we had a public speaking workshop there. <laughs> and after, you know, there's sort of an initial um talk about some basic tips just just on technique of public speaking you know find a place where you're comfortable standing so that you don't have to sway back and forth make sure you try to keep your hands under control make eye contact some basic things that will help you put you at ease and etc and i got done kind of talking about these these basic tips before the participants started and jeff was in the back like kind of chuckling the whole time and he said man 
said, you made me feel really bad. And I said, why? I said, you're, you're one of the best public speakers I know. You go, I know, but I break every one of those rules. So I started watching <laughs> Jeff when I watched you give talks and you, it, it just, it cracked me up because I had never noticed before because I think you're so good at connecting with the audience, but from a technical standpoint, you're like horrible, right? Like you're standing, yeah. you're standing, you're balancing on one foot and like leaning back and forth. And you're, <laughs> because you're totally in the moment, you seem to be breaking all the rules. And this is a broader theme, I think, with with you certainly and with some other very creative people I know that you, from outward appearances anyway, it would seem that you just sort of break all rules and conventions and the typical tips and practices that make people able to perform consistently, be productive, be creative. You seem to buck all of them, but you have to have rules for yourself. We, we know about the writing every day, 1,500 words. Um, and that you try to make yourself right immediately in the moment, as you just shared with us. Are there other rules in sort of your nitty gritty everyday life that you employ for yourself uh, to, to, to get the most out of your day? Well, I don't recommend I don't recommend the things that I do, actually, because I'm not sure if they work for everybody. For me, <laughs> it really does work. Um, my biggest problem uh, with speaking is that I over prepare. Mm. So um, I have to actually discipline myself to not prepare uh, what does that much. preparation look like for you? Uh, for me, I like to wait about, I like to attend the event I'm speaking at and be there about an hour ahead of time and get a sense of the room, uh, size up the crowd, uh, you know, try to discern what it is, what's going on there and what needs to be said and what needs to be heard. And then not think too much about what I'm about to say until about 15 or 20 minutes before. And then I, t I will typically get a tiny piece of paper and write three small points on it. And that's over-preparing or that's how you want to be doing it? No, that's how I want to be okay. doing it. So what's but it look I'm, like when you over-prepare? When, when I'm over-prepare is when I've, I've thought too much about it like a week in advance and I sit down and I'll write down you know, some notes and I'll come up with like 10 points and it's a disaster. <laughs> you know, I, I, this has happened to me before. Uh, by the way, um, you're, you're talking about uh, speaking style and that sort of thing. Um, so this was, it took me a while to kind of figure out how I wanted to present myself as a speaker. Um, so one time I gave a speech and I, it wasn't very good. And I had a guy come up to me afterwards and say, listen, uh, it's so distracting the way you're, you're moving around all the time. You're not, you're not well organized. Um, you know, it's just, it's, you're just a mess. So he said, from now on, here's what you need to do. Plant your feet firmly behind this podium. Uh, don't move your head at all. Speak directly into the microphone and have like five points. And uh, don't otherwise move. Just focus entirely on speaking clearly and calmly. So I tried this once. And I bored the audience. It's <laughs> the worst speech I ever gave. So after that, I thought, okay, that didn't work. I have to figure out something else. So then I gave another speech. I think this was in, in Vienna, and I had over-prepared, right? You get, you're, you're being brought to Vienna. You're speaking in, in front of some huge audience. I don't know what. No, this was, I think, in Salamanca. And um, I had prepared too much material, and I presented it. But right in the middle of it, I felt a sudden sense of inspiration. And by looking up at the choir loft, and I, and I, I kind of lifted my head out of my notes, and I just kind of extemporaneously said something like, can we just go back in time and think about what it is the monks that were here in this room and say the 15th century sang about? And anyway, I, I sang a quick Gregorian chant and uh, I talked about that chant. 
and its relationship to economics and and that sort of thing. That's a bold move. That's a scary move to to a in a talk move. to start singing. I mean, everyone in the room yeah. probably felt a little embarrassed for a minute. That that's a pretty yeah. and did it and it go went over well. Well, so then I watched the film of this talk afterwards, and it was amazing. It was like the whole talk was in black and white, and kind of dull. It wasn't incompetent, but it was un, it was not very interesting. And then that part where I lifted up from my notes and actually just began to speak from the heart and tried to really connect with people, it's like it became in, in technicolor. You know, just like you could just feel it. It was the most interesting few minutes of the speech by far. So after I watched that, I thought, okay, what can I learn from this? How can I make every speech I give just as good as those few minutes mm. were in the middle of this speech? Um, so I need to learn how to be authentic. I need to learn how to be spontaneous. I need to learn how to connect and speak directly with people from the heart. So I, I set up an aspiration for myself as a speaker to always do that. And so that's why you don't always succeed, but that's what I, that's what I want to do. So I learned so much from that experience. Um, one of the things I liked about your, your, your training seminars, you're expecting everybody to kind of uh, speak without notes, you know? And that is, that is, that's, it's hard and it takes time, but I, I think you're exactly right. Um, in the end, you have to be able to, you have to be able to uh, speak without uh, staring down at, at notes and much less reading. Yeah. And I, yeah. I think it, I think people, not even so much because it's not possible to give a good talk, uh, looking at notes, but because the act of doing it almost undermines your own confidence. I, I think bullet points are really helpful. Um, I use them. A lot of people do. Some people don't need them at all. But a handful of bullet points, like you said, your three points or your five points. And if you know your content well enough, you can riff off of those points just fine. But when you have all the content written out, it kind of undermines your own confidence. It's like, okay, I need all these because without them, I don't really know what I'm saying. Um, I just, I feel like it sort of, it takes away from that authenticity. But one, one thing I want to well, say, oh, go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, well, just one other, one other point about this. You know, um, people are terrified to speak and they get like overwhelmed. I was talking to the person a couple of days ago that said that uh, before she gave her, her first talk, she was like, like physically sick for, a, for an entire day ahead of time, like practically uh, to the point of, you know, wanting to go to the doctor kind of oh. level of sick. So, and what is going on? I mean, that anxiety that we feel, um, how can we use that for, for our benefit? And, and even now, I mean, I still feel, I want to feel nervous before I get up. Yes. To I feel like the day uh, that I don't have any nerves at all, I might as well hang it up, you know, cause exactly. that means I don't care enough. No, that's right. And you can use it. What happens is, at least for me anyway, I sense that my body is creating a kind of a drug. I guess it's called adrenaline or something <laughs> like that. And it, it's good. It serves you well, you know. So I rely on that adrenaline to, uh, to feed my brain and to get me fired up. So I will, before I start to speak, I'll feel that sort of sudden rush of excitement. And I get, like, excited you know, and I just start like jumping up and down a little bit, you know, and just like gripping my hands tightly. And I'm so fired up. Like I have 45 minutes now to to maybe say something extremely important. All these people are listening to me. That's a thrilling thing to happen to you. So it, it kind of takes you into a, uh, a a little bit of a like almost a physiological change that takes place. Mm. And and that that could serve you really well as a speaker because you're you're um, you're or your audience senses that from you. Yeah, they they get a real sense of excitement also about what you're saying. It's kind of like um, 
the, the closest feeling that I can think of, it's, it's like if you're on a road trip and you're just driving on an open highway with no, no traffic, weather's beautiful, you got cruise control on. Uh, it's not bad. It's nice. You're kind of passively enjoying the process of driving. Um, but there's something you couldn't keep it up for forever, but there's something really that makes you feel alive and in the moment to be driving with a decent amount of traffic, maybe, uh, some visibility problems, a little bit of rain. You're gripping the steering wheel. Your senses are so heightened and alert and you're so conscious of your connection to that car and the speed and the dangers around you. And again, if you did it for a long period of time, you'd be exhausted, but in that moment, you're really driving. And that kind of adrenaline with a little bit of fear, you, you know the risk involved, it really sharpens your senses and brings you, brings you into the moment. Um, it really does. It gives, you, gives, gives rise to new ideas. Um, and by the way, I never have any hesitancy about uh, if something just occurs to me at the moment, um, and I've never practiced it before, I've never heard my say, myself say it before, I just go ahead and say it. You know, I just, I just throw it has out. Has that ever really bombed for you? Yeah, I um, like it's been yeah, like, oh, maybe I, I should have thought about that first. You know? <laughs> yeah, sometimes, sometimes I suppose that I, I get a little bit reckless um, when I speak. But I, I think I think that listeners kind of like that. They can tell. Yeah, you, you know, take that, the trade that off. You really, yeah, yeah. They they can tell. Uh, I think again, authenticity is 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 everything, and humility, and speaking from the heart, and just. Just really offering yourself up as a servant uh, to your listeners. Mm. Um, I feel that same way about writing too. You know, um, you really should uh, offer yourself up as a as a servant to to the readers, uh, to stimulate their thinking and to make their lives better. So one of the reasons that I suspect you are a really good uh, I don't suspect you're a really good speaker. You are a really good speaker, um, but one I suspect one of the reasons for that is because you consume so much content. So if you could like even estimate, how much do you think you read on a daily, weekly, monthly basis? Wow. I don't know. But I, if I'm not tackling one or two books at any one time, then I'm feeling a little bit uh, like things aren't going right. Mm -hmm. And I don't even care what they are. And, and there's no excuse for people not being able to re read massive amounts of books. I mean, in the old days, you had to carry them with you everywhere. Now, if you just have your little Samsung reader or your iPad with you, you can, you can pull down books all the time. And I, so there's, you know, just like, you know, every day, I'm, I've always got my iPad open uh, blasting through some book. I, it'd be hard to say, you know, like, like how many I read, but, um, and it's not really about, about, uh, uh, quantity, but I, but I, I can tell, and I wonder if you feel the same way, Isaac, that if you're not like heavily involved in some kind of reading program, that you actually do feel a sense of intellectual drain. Absolutely. You know, at some point. Absolutely. And, and the books that you read sort of fill up your mind. Uh, in a funny way, and in and in ways you don't entirely expect, you know, um, like you could be reading a book about the history of forestry or whatever, and suddenly you'll have a great insight on, um, on on uh, you know wages or plumbing or something else. I mean, yeah, the the connections between things between the that our minds draw between things are always a little bit mysterious and unpredictable. Yeah, and I that that's what excites me the most is just. Just how the world of ideas is so kaleidoscopic in some way, you know. The, I, I often, I often feel like really dumb for. It's like I, I, no matter how many times I learn certain lessons about myself, I seem to forget them. So one of those is, every time I'm going through a period where I just feel a little bit flat, I'm getting a little bit restless. I'm kind of just yep. not really, on my game. 
And then I'll go read a book and realize, oh, I haven't been reading that much lately. This solves it every time. How do I keep forgetting this and let, <laughs> let myself slack? I know. And a lot of it is that, you know, I think that we are all just a little bit lazy, just sort of naturally. Uh, we're afraid to stress ourselves out, you know. I just think people need to just stop making excuses for themselves, you know. <clears throat> I think the worst phrase in the English language is, there's, there's several of them. One of them is, I'm tired. Mm. I mean, there is no sure way to make yourself tired than to say, I'm tired. Some, somebody, <laughs> once, somebody once told me, he said, Isaac, tired is nothing but a belief. And I said, okay, I'm kind of following you. That might be a little extreme. And he said, well, imagine yourself being the most tired you could ever be. And then someone says, you know, the example he gave me uh, didn't really work for me, but he said, you know, then someone says, hey, there's a bunch of supermodels in the next room that want to hang out with you. Or someone says, hey, uh, you know, your house is on fire and your dog is trapped inside. Would you feel tired then? No, you wouldn't. You would immediately snap out of it. Now, obviously, there's a physical limit at some point. But so often when we feel tired and I fall prey to this all the time at the end of the day. I'm just tired. Oftentimes it's playing with my kids that, that suffers from it. Like they want to play some complex game that involves me running around. And instead I'm like, how about we play walk on daddy's back while I lay on the ground? <laughs> you know, I'm just tired, but it is really that state of mind. If someone said, Hey, if you drive an hour away, uh, you can get a, collect a $1 million check. I would jump up and be totally amped in a second. So it is, um, it is really hard to overcome that, that mindset. Uh example henry hazlitt in his wonderful book i love this book it's called the way to willpower he was always embarrassed about it um but it's a, it's actually a wonderful book it's written something like the early 1920s um he gives the example of of the it's the old-fashioned example that the wife asks the husband to to after coming home from work to beat the rugs uh which i i think guess you had to do before they were vacuum cleaners so and he says look i just i've had a long day at the office just not the thing but that same guy gets a call from a coworker and says, hey, why don't you come on over where we have a poker game? You know, he's going to be over there in, in, in three minutes, you know. So, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, that's I'm tired. The other one that people make excuses that people say all the time is a kind of a great excuse uh, that, that people offer for their for being unproductive is I have no time. You know, mm. that's just not true. That's just so often not true. We say these things reflective, reflexively, but it's just oftentimes just not true. I try to say yes to as many things as I can in life. Really? Um, so I, I've yeah. taken it to me, the opposite approach has been really valuable to me. I try to say no to almost everything except for the stuff that is like a definite, oh, hell yes, this looks amazing because I find that that streamlining is really helpful for me. Do you that's interesting. You know, I, yeah, and I, pr I probably could do more of that streamlining. But, but, but I want to hear about your, your method. This is, this is I really do. interesting. I, I just say, I say yes to everything and I try to pack my schedule just as full as I possibly can. Huh. And I like to be in a, in a little bit of a state of a panic uh, a rush all the time. Um, so so I, what does I a like typical that. day look like? Because if you're cranking out 1500 words, like you've got to have some time that you set aside to just focus on one project and just create without interruption. Walk me through a typical day if there is such a thing. Well, I, I, you know, I guess every everybody's different, but I, I like to get up really early. You know, so I like to I like to be up uh, by five thirty or something like that, and I get most of my big creative work done before the rest of the world uh, wakes up. Okay. Um, yeah. So I'll I'll blast through the newspapers and then start start writing immediately. So I've already, I've usually written 
a thousand words or something like that before before um, you know eight o'clock, you know fifteen hundred words before eight o'clock in the morning every day, um, without fail. And and that kind of gets me going, and it makes me already feel like I've kind of had a a pretty decent day, even before the day has begun, right? So yeah, yeah, and, and, yeah. And so I usually try to accept um, almost every podcast interview that comes along. I try to do Thank television you. whenever, yeah, whenever, whenever the the opportunity um, comes along. Part of, part of it is it's a little bit of a pathology I have that I'm so excited that people want to hear what I have to say, and I don't feel like I can depend on that always being true. So I just don't want to ever give up any opportunities. And I've, I've found that the more I do, uh, the more I'm capable of doing. I, you know? Yeah, yeah. That is not an uncommon experience. I found that myself as well, that the yeah. times when I've had, you know, a whole bunch of things going on at once and I'm building a company and raising a family and doing all, it's like I'm able to do more the more I do because doing a lot of things is a skill in and of itself. And you only learn how to do a lot of things by doing a lot of things. And the more you do it, the more you're able. And we, and, and really we, and we have to stress ourselves out a little bit because we have to test ourselves and remember that we are kind of anti-fragile. I mean, people, people, you know, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. I mean, it's just really true. Mm. And, um, and I think we all underestimate their, our mental functioning and, and what we're capable of doing uh, in the course of a day. Uh, we, we, are so, we are so bad at making excuses for ourselves. It's just, it's just grim. Um, I, I don't, uh, uh, and, and I see it all around me, you know. I'm, I'm now, like, leading a team of developers at, at, at Fee, and uh, one of the things I'm trying to get everybody to realize is that we're all capable of doing vastly more than we think. Um, so I'll drag the developers into a room and put on some loud, you know, uh, techno pop music and get to work on a code project that everybody's saying, oh, this is going to take to the end of the summer. And I'll say, no, it's going to take till three o'clock today. <laughs> does, that, and, uh, does, that, does that take people off? Do you, do you lose credibility or do you have to build some social capital first before you can, can push somebody like that? So what happens is, yeah, at first people are annoyed because they'd rather be, you know, posting on Facebook or something. Um, but you gra we grab them in and get them all inspired and, and feed off the energy of each other. And then by the three or four o'clock rolls around and the job is complete and we're all yelling and high-fiving each other, uh, then you go home with a sense of like, wow. Uh, we're the coolest team that's ever existed. We just did something unbelievable. Mm. I mean, and that that sense of, of a swelling, sense of wild satisfaction you get from having accomplished, done something amazing. Yeah, it's just it's just irreplaceable. It's it can happen every day, but but when it does happen, it's it's like magic. So uh, this is a good a good time to to segue into the the last thing I wanted to talk about, and I don't want to take too much more time, but. So I, we've, we've have our three P's, the productive, personable partier, that is Jeff Tucker. We talked about being productive and being a, a partier, somebody who plays, uh, enjoys life. I want to talk about this idea of being personable because you are a writer, a creator, you're, you're putting ideas out into the world all the time and often very radical ideas. I mean, you, it's not uncommon for you to be writing articles about, Hey, maybe this branch of government doesn't need to exist. Maybe we don't need government at all. Hey, maybe we should, you know, pretty, pretty radical stuff that has, and it does, honestly, when you create things and you write a lot, when it doesn't even matter if you think it's radical, someone's always going to be offended. So I'm sure things that you produce and ideas that you've put forth have offended a lot of people a lot of times. 
but I never see you getting into arguments online or in person or, or being defensive or calling people out by name. Like you don't seem to have actual enemies. People might disagree with you, but you're such a likable, personable guy. Would you say that is just a part of your personality or is this a conscious choice you have made as how to engage people um, who disagree with your ideas? Well, I've learned something very important over time, namely that uh, you never know where the next really valuable idea is going to come from. And, and I've learned to also uh, really appreciate people who take the time to disagree with me, even, even in very sharp terms, because it makes me think. I mean, it's like a gift. When somebody comes up to you and says, you're completely wrong for the following reason, uh, that does something to your mind because you immediately have to check yourself, right? And then you can, you might change your ideas, you might firm up your ideas, you might be able to frame it, reframe it in a way that may, makes it exciting for that person. Um, but but your critics are your benefactors, and once I learned that, I began to look at everybody in a different way as as potentially offering value to my life. And 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 I, I appreciate it. And I genuinely want to celebrate people who who are to have taken the time to read something I wrote, <laughs> even if they're taking the issue with it, because it's going gonna, it's gonna to make me stronger and make me a, a more compelling thinker, and they might have something to teach me. You know, you just can't rule that out. One of the great lessons we learned from reading Hayek, which everybody should do, um, is that Amen. our knowledge is limited. <laughs> you know? it's, it's limited, and none of us have the full truth. It's, we just don't have access to that. But we can always sort of get closer to it. That's the name of the game, is to is just to always be headed in the right direction, really. If, if you and, can take that broad insight from Hayek it, that our knowledge is limited and in, in what we know, the facts that we know are very limited. And even if we you know, get a good group of smart people around us. So the emphasis for Hayek in the marketplace is it's on we need to look to the process itself and understand that there's a great process for helping us access knowledge that we don't even have to necessarily know explicitly. We can sort of have access to it by participating in this great marketplace. And I think that concept of allowing, putting ourselves in a process that enhances our knowledge and gives us feedback when we don't know things, it's kind of what you were describing on a personal level of you value the comments and the disagreements because that gives you access to information you didn't previously have. You can't know what's in people's heads, even though you'd like to, because it'd help you as a writer, but you kind of can when they give you feedback on things. That was true. I, I was telling the story a couple of days ago at a, in Ann Arbor. I was just at the university there speaking um, of a professor I had in college who taught a class on ethics. And the guy was that he just had this unfailing instinct for having the wrong views on practically everything. <laughs> uh, he was like an like an open communist, you know, uh, a moral relativist. Uh, everything he said just struck me as as just like weirdly wrong, a hundred percent across the board. Um, and and I, I at some level I thought I thought this is an outrage. I'm paying for this class, so I'm having to sit here and take this thing. But every day in class, he would make me so upset that I would I would just immediately like you know, go to the library and start pulling down books and trying to find ways to to refute him. Mm. Um, well, I realized at the end of that class, I must have read about sixty books, even aside from those that he had assigned us, <laughs> just because it drove me so crazy. Now, this was some years ago. Well, <clears throat> I guess. Everybody's still around these days on Facebook or whatever. And I found him on Facebook. I said, oh, my God, that guy's still kicking. And I wrote him a note. I said, you know, Professor, 
I thought your class was absolutely dreadful. But as I look back at my college life, it was actually the single most valuable class I had because I learned more than your class, not because you taught it to me, but because you inspired me to go out and discover information on my own. And I became just like a kick-ass intellectual as a result of that class. So, so, so well read. Turning that dissatisfaction into action or turning critiques or negative feedback or, or arguments into an impetus to, to do something, to better your argument, to better your ideas, I think that's really where it's at. I, I find, I'm, I think I'm a much weaker person than you in this regard. I really don't like to read comments or negative, um, you know, arguments about stuff that I've put out there because it makes me so unhappy. It can ruin my day. And I keep trying to become a bigger person to where it like doesn't get, it doesn't always, but it often does. Like, and I think, well, you know what? It's not doing anything for me. It's just making me upset. I'm just going to ignore it. And that's helped me a lot, but I feel like it's, it's only helped me because I'm, I'm not to the point yet where I can just look at it and be like, Oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's fun and do something with it productive. It, it, still, <laughs> it still hurts me too much, I think. Well, uh, wh one thing I like to do is, you know, you, we, we all have had nasty things tweeted at us, and I get that all the time. I try to make a habit of not engaging people when they when they're, have, like, violent prose towards you, you know? And I'll sometimes just write them back and say, thanks so much for your comments, I really appreciate it, and just leave it at that. And that's, like, totally diffuses the situation. Another thing I'll do is I'll typically retweet Anybody who's um, insulted me or oh, attacked me, yeah, and and I just retweet them without comment, and <laughs> and then and then your fans come to your defense, <laughs> yeah, and and yeah, but, and but whether or not they do, there's almost kind of a purging element where like you release the tension by just getting it out in the open and acknowledging. Oh, it's fun. It's fun. Uh, the other thing I'll do is sometimes the people on Facebook's famous for this, right? A lot of gets filled with nastiness all over the place. I will sometimes when somebody just says something just just outrageous, um, I'll just write them a private message and say, listen, I, I don't know you, um, but I clearly feel like I must have offended you inadvertently at some point in my life. And if that's true, I just really want to apologize to you. It's amazing how, uh, you know, people talk about Internet courage. And when you see someone face to face, they would never say the things they say in a comment thread, even just direct message like comment courage is really real. People will say stuff in a comment thread really nasty stuff about a person. Whereas if you just call them out sort of not publicly, I don't, I never think that's productive on the thread to be like, well, you're an idiot. You shouldn't say this, but to privately message them very nicely like that. It's amazing how quickly things dissipate and they're kind of, uh -huh. Oh, maybe I was a little too extreme. I really just was interested in this. Um, it's pretty amazing. I know no exceptions uh, to that rule. Every time I've ever contacted anybody through a private message and, and just preemptively apologized for however I might've offended the person, they always back down and go, Oh my God, Look, I really actually like your writings. I shouldn't have said what I said, hmm. um, and I really appreciate that you're writing and I, uh, that you're that you contact me this way. And I hope that we get a chance to meet up and solve some of our differences. I mean, you can find the decency in people if you just look for it. You know, hmm. absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Well, my guest today has been Jeffrey Tucker. Um, he his writings can be found at fee.org uh, at liberty.me, where he writes every day. Jeff, is there anywhere else people should go to, to connect with you on Twitter, on Facebook? Yeah, I've got an official page on, on Facebook. I'm always looking for likes on, on that. Um, and then, of course, my publishing site is tucker.liberty.me. Um, and, yeah, you can find me at Fee and lots of other places. Uh, Wonderful. So I appreciate it. Wonderful, Thanks Jeff. So this, yeah, you bet. This has been great. Hopefully we can have you on again. Love to. Thank you, Isaac. You bet. All the best to you.